0: to occult experiments in the home, magic, spirituality and the paranormal, in personal experience and in practice. I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was living among the Kurus. Now the Kurus have a town named Kamasadama and there the Venerable Ananda approached the Blessed One and on arrival having bowed down to the Blessed One, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, It's amazing, Lord, it's astounding how deep this dependent co-arising is and how deep its appearance. And yet to me, it seems as clear as clear can be. The Buddha replied, Don't say that, Ananda, don't say that. Deep is this dependent co-arising and deep its appearance. It's because of not understanding and not penetrating this Dharma that this generation is like a tangled skein, like a knotted ball of string, like matted rushes and weeds and does not go beyond transmigration, beyond the planes of deprivation, woe and bad destinations. The Buddha continued, if one is asked Is there a demonstrable requisite condition for ageing and death? One should answer, there is. If one is asked, from what requisite condition do ageing and death come? One should say, ageing and death come from birth as their requisite condition. That's the opening of one of the most important, sophisticated and profound of the Pali Buddhist suttas, the Maha Nidana Sutta, which translates as something like the Great Discourse on Causes. And that's going to be our topic for today's episode. But before you switch off, of course, I'm going to be talking about the relevance of these profound teachings that are at the heart of Buddhist philosophy to magical practice and to western occultism. So let me state from the very outset that what I think these teachings offer us is a profoundly well worked out model and theory of manifestation. These teachings delineate in minute detail how from emptiness from absolute nothingness process of manifestation occurs by which things appear to us as things. In western occultism one of the main conceptual frameworks for understanding manifestation is derived from Kabbalah, specifically the Kabbalistic tree of life. The tree of life comes to us via the Judaic tradition so it's a heavily theistic model and the model That the Buddha gives us of manifestation might seem at first very different because there is no whiff of God or the divine about it. You often hear it argued, most frequently of all perhaps, by Western secular Buddhists, that Buddhism isn't actually a religion, it's more a philosophy or a psychology. Personally, I don't agree with that. I don't think what makes a religion is something that includes an idea of God. What characterises religion for me is a system of thinking that presents a finalised model of reality. Only a system of thinking that presents reality as being a certain way can really offer us any sort of guide for showing us what the best way is to live our lives. This is in stark contrast to science of course science when it's truly science never makes any pronouncement about some sort of final or ultimate reality. The scientist is always in a process of discovering more and more knowledge any of which could completely revise what had been discovered before. There's no fixed idea of what reality is and how the world works in science or there shouldn't be because, as we know, there is these days a thing called scientism, which is, I think, best viewed as a religion based on the secular materialist way of looking at the world. The risk that all religions run, however, is that model they present to us of how things are is vulnerable to contradiction. Say if, for instance, there was a way that it was one day definitively prove that Jesus Christ had never lived I don't personally think that that's the case and I don't know what sort of evidence could prove that because of course it's impossible to prove a negative but if we supposed that were somehow proved then Christianity would have to pack up and shut up shop because that model of reality that it presents would have been shown to be false and the same is true of Buddhism What if one day some kind of subatomic particle were found that had some sort of essence or self-subsistence that meant it was separated from all of reality, that it was a thing and it had a self? Again, I don't think that's going to happen any time soon. But in that case, Buddhism too would have to shut up shop because if something were discovered that were not empty, that had independent self-subsistence and didn't arise from prior causes, then the fundamental concept of Buddhism, the concept of dependent co-arising, would have been shown to be false. And the doctrine of dependent co-arising is as central to Buddhism as the figure of Christ as the Redeemer and Son of God is to Christianity. The world's major religions however have all been with us for quite a long time and the reason for that I think is that they're probably pretty much on the money. The models of reality that they offer are accurate or at least highly useful to a significant degree and that's why they've hung around for so long. The Nidanas, the causes, are part of the Buddha's teachings on dependent co-arising when we look at dependent co-arising as a process by which things come to appear to us as things, then the nidanas are phases, stages in that process. Now, I don't identify as a buddhist, I'm a magician and my practice really is still very much based in the tradition of chaos magic in its practical outward aspects. And I think it's true to say that Thinking of the many chaos magicians who I've met and worked with over the years. Although we tend to borrow freely ideas and techniques from all sorts of cultures and traditions and spiritual systems. Most of us I think have a particular tradition that we feel most at home with and that calls to us the most. For me personally that tradition is Buddhism and it's maybe a bit odd but despite practicing Buddhist meditation for about 30 years now I still don't identify as a Buddhist, I've never joined a Sangha and I don't consider my knowledge of Buddhism particularly deep I'm not an academic, I'm not a historian I'm simply somebody who has come up against problems and questions in their life and I've used concepts and techniques that have appeared to me to offer something useful in responding to these and I think that's probably the case with a lot of people who identify as magicians. If science gives us a means of arriving at reliable knowledge and religion gives us practical map of reality as it can best be understood by which we can orient ourselves and live a good life then I think magic is open to both of those approaches and can contain and absorb both science and religion but in magic we aim for mastery of our own reality we're not content to allow the scientists and the priests and the gurus to set it all out for us We want to do our own experiments and we want to find our own path to awakening and enlightenment. If someone gives us a map of reality, we'll probably want to hack it in some way. We'll probably want to find a shortcut. And this is something too that I hope to draw out in the Buddha's teachings on the Nidanas, Because inherent in that model are some hacks. No less a hack in fact than escaping death and suffering. So let's get stuck in. We're going to go deep. But as ever, I'll try my best to anchor everything we're looking at in experience. We're magicians. That's what we're primarily interested in, not dogma or knowledge just for the sake of knowledge. So the Buddha starts with the problem very much at hand, which is the reality of suffering, old age and death. These are inevitabilities of life these are what all of us are destined to have to confront in one form or another and the buddha inquires into the causes of old age suffering and death and he concludes that the cause of these is birth but he doesn't stop there then he asks what is the cause of that cause what is the cause of birth and the answer he gives is becoming And the Sutta doesn't end there, it's very long, very complicated. The Buddha ends up tracing back a whole chain of causes. Many of these are surprising and subtle, so we'll take some time exploring them in some detail. So, we are confronting death and the cause of that is the fact of our birth. Everything that comes into existence will at some point cease to exist. And one of the things to remark on here is how intimately death and life are woven together. We may worry about one day ceasing to exist. But what about the person we were 10 years ago or 20 years ago or the baby that we were when we were born? Are those identities part of what we experience today? They've already ceased to exist. We might tend to see birth as a creation, a production of something new. But when we think about it more deeply, that's actually not what it is. Everything that is born starts off as part of something else, eventually assuming some kind of form that enables us to perceive it as something other than the thing that it came from. And that maybe helps us understand the next link in the chain as described by the Buddha, that the cause of birth is becoming. What I think he means by that is when we look at the material world around us, everything's in a state of flux and instability. It's pretty obvious when you think about it, but wherever we look at material reality, there's always something. And where there's something, there's always something happening to that something. In material reality, as it appears, there are no gaps. There are never times when everything stops happening. This is the underlying cause of birth. Things arise from other things because that's pretty inevitable given that something's always happening and there's always something for it to happen to. It's also important to recognise perhaps that what we perceive as negative things also are effects of this process of becoming such as wars and the ending of relationships and harmful viruses. Although in the everyday world we might tend to see life and death as opposites, just having taken these couple of steps back along the chain of causes in the Buddha's model of dependent co-arising, we can see how they're not really opposites at all. They're both just different perspectives on this underlying ceaseless process of becoming. But what is the cause of becoming? The answer, the Buddha tells us, is grasping. Grasping is the cause of becoming. And this is maybe the first of the links that makes us think, what? But when we think about it some more, it starts to make sense. In becoming there was the idea of things constantly fluxing and transforming. But in what gives rise to this, in grasping, is the sense of a kind of lust for existence. (laughs) Think of a newly fertilised egg cell inside a mother. Soon it'll be a fetus, it'll start to grow and develop. It has to grasp on to its mother To become it must grasp in order to have blood and oxygen and nutrients and whatever that process will demand. Everything must grasp at other things in order to come to be. As living animals we're constantly grasping at oxygen for instance. So what is the cause of grasping? The cause of grasping the Buddha tells us is craving. And here something interesting happens because we transition into what we might ordinarily think of as the interior realm, the psychological realm. Death, birth, becoming, grasping. We can observe these processes in externally perceived phenomena but craving is something that we can perceive only by experiencing it inside ourselves. So we grasp because we crave. Some cravings of course are impossible to resist, such as the craving for food and oxygen, but the distinction here is that we can resist them, although probably not for very long with regard to the examples just mentioned. In grasping it's like a certain commitment to becoming has been determined, but at the level of craving this is still to be called. Some cravings can be resisted, some can be suppressed or overcome, such as the craving for a milkshake maybe, which we might be able to do something about. A couple of points to note here. As was mentioned, we've transitioned from things that can be perceived externally into things from this point onwards that can only be sensed internally. And it may seem odd to think of the world as material reality, as something determined by causes that precede backwards in a psychological direction. But remember that this is an experiential model. A famous remark of the Buddha is, with our minds we make the world. That's what we're exploring here and that's what's of relevance to us as magicians. If we've got a good map of how our minds create the world, then we can start to hack it. If instead we'd prefer to just take a pill that will solve all our problems for us, that's not a magical approach. That's not hacking experience, that's hacking material reality, if such a thing is even possible. And to explore whether it is, then you need to be a scientist, not a magician. The other point to know is at the level of craving, maybe it becomes apparent how we can start to work some hacks. So as I mentioned, at the level of grasping, there's a commitment to becoming. There's a judgment that has already been called. But at the level of craving, this judgment hasn't yet been called. So here there is a potential for intervention. If there's something that we don't want to grasp at then the way to prevent that arising is to develop awareness at the level beneath, the level of craving, where that judgment has not been made. And this can be seen to apply to all the levels from now on. If we can identify that we've got a problem with grasping, then we can address that by developing awareness at the level of craving. And equally, if we're seeing that we have an issue at the level of craving, And to really address that we can develop awareness at the level that gives rise to craving. And what causes craving, the Buddha tells us, is feeling tone. That term is a bit clumsy. It's the translation into English of a Pali word, Vedana. And what this term Vedana is referring to is a particular characteristic of feelings that inclines us towards cravings. So normally when we feel a craving, we're aware of that, it feels as if it's come from nowhere, as if it's a given. But as ever, what the Buddha's pointing out here is there are no givens, nothing in the world is sufficient and sealed off unto itself. Everything appears because it's caused by something. Vedna is a process by which the mind categorizes sensations feelings into one of three types sensations are presented to us by the mind as having a feeling tone that's either pleasant unpleasant or neutral and this is the process that gives rise to craving because if a sensation is pleasant then we'll want more of it if it's unpleasant then We'll crave for it to stop or to be replaced by something else, something nicer. But perhaps sensations with a neutral feeling tone are the most interesting of all. Because what we'll notice then is if we're experiencing something that's neutral, our attention to it, our awareness of it will just tend to fuzz out or go numb or blank. We lose interest or start to feel bored. And that's maybe the biggest giveaway of what Vedana confronts us with. Things don't by their nature cause us to crave them. It's not the things themselves that produce craving but our attitude towards them. Whether we happen to regard them as pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. These last three stages that we've been looking at. Grasping, craving and Vedana or feeling tone if we're doing a regular spiritual practice or if we're doing psychological work on changing ourselves I think that this is the area probably where the activity and the awareness is mostly taking place rather than at the deeper more metaphysical levels that we'll get onto presently but even so the work on these levels is not to be underestimated it really is important and valuable Years ago I went on a retreat and it just so happened that the teacher on duty there was Rob Bebea. And this was at the time before he started to develop his teachings that have since become known as soul-making dharma. But at that time he very much used to make use of the concept of Vedana in his work with students. And he set me the task of going off and doing my usual Vipassana practice at that time and seeing if I could notice the action of Vedana in my experience. So one day I was sitting meditating and there was a blackbird singing outside the meditation hall which sounded lovely and I noticed a temptation just to sit and listen to the birds singing rather than focusing on the meditation that I was doing. And then at the same time I started to notice a pain in my leg. This of course was unpleasant and also felt quite spoiling and frustrating. I didn't want to be aware of that and it made the temptation to just drift off and listen to the birds singing all the more intense. But I managed to remain aware somehow and watch what was happening in my mind as these experiences of the bird singing and the pain in my leg were both present to awareness and indeed all of a sudden I could see how my mind was applying labels to these sensations. Pain in leg nasty, sound of bird lovely and then I became aware of all the other things that were going on that I wasn't giving any attention to because they'd been labelled by my mind as just meh. Although, of course, those sensations were just as present as anything else. And suddenly, somehow, I'd arrived at the level that precedes Vedana altogether. Suddenly, I was aware of the pain in my leg and the singing of the bird and all the other things that I wasn't particularly paying any interest to. And I could see they were all exactly the same. They were all just sensations. Sometime after that sit I went out for a walk. And the effects of that insight still seemed to be hanging around. Because it felt like I'd swallowed a whole packet of painkillers. There was no pain, no suffering anywhere in my experience. Because all sensations were arising just as sensations. I was somehow fully aware of this labelling activity that was always going on, the labelling of sensations into pleasant, unpleasant and neutral. And because I could see it clearly, I didn't have to buy into it. Now, of course, that experience faded away. But even though the ecstatic states that can sometimes arise from this sort of work won't stay around, we're still left with the knowledge of them, we're still left with the knowledge that these kinds of insights give us and that in itself is valuable, that in itself can help reduce our level of suffering. So as I mentioned earlier I think the work that we do in this area of the sequence around grasping, craving and Vedana, it's not to be underrated if you can become aware of your mind's attitude towards sensations, which is what happens at the level of Vedana, then it's possible to interrupt the arising of cravings. Failing that, even if it's possible to become aware of cravings, then maybe it's possible to interrupt the tendency to grasp at things. And failing that, even if it's possible to become aware that we're grasping at things, We can maybe try by brute willpower alone to resist or interrupt that, in which case that can interrupt the chain that leads to becoming. What we're looking at here, remember, is the process of manifestation, the process by which things appear in our experience, appear in the world. And this interruption, this intervention that I'm talking about, what that provides the opportunity for is something else manifesting different from what ordinarily or usually appears. I really want to give a sense here of how this model, this step-by-step anatomy of what the Buddha called dependent co-arising is absolutely rippling with magical potential all the way along the chain. So, feeling tone is not the end of that chain, far from it. What determines whether we interpret feelings, sensations as pleasant, unpleasant or neutral is whatever we happen to be perceiving. And this stage in the chain the Buddha described as sensory contact. Now again the important thing here is this stage is part of a process just like all the other stages. Sensory contact is not intended to imply some kind of passive process where something substantial, something independent impinges upon us from the outside world. Perception is an active process. It's the interaction of our senses with the outside world, not merely our senses registering something. There's that classic old philosophical question about if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one to hear it, does it make a sound? And there is an answer to that question which is fairly widely accepted which is that no, it doesn't make a sound. The justification for the answer is that what we mean by a sound is an interaction between vibrations in the air and a human sensory system. This is also the level at which The sense of there being an external world makes its appearance. It's that contact, the way that our senses respond to particular kinds of stimuli, and the interaction of the two together, that creates the impression that our senses are like some sort of gateway onto an external world. I'm not suggesting that. There isn't actually anything beyond our senses that there's no real world out there or that that world out there is somehow bad or false in any way. But just that what becomes apparent at this stage is how the contact we have through our senses determines what we perceive. What we perceive isn't really a kind of transparent window on an external world. But it is really an interaction between our senses and the stimuli impinging upon them. Perhaps it's the case that if we're using psychedelics or other types of techniques for altering or influencing perception. Then this is going to be the level at which those interventions will have an effect. Next link in the chain. The cause of sensory contact is the nature of the senses themselves and to this next stage the Buddha gave the name six senses. In Western culture the idea of a sixth sense often suggests something paranormal like clairvoyance or telepathy but in Buddhist psychology this sixth sense is just as mundane and commonplace as the other five. This sixth sense is the mind but regarding mind as a sense puts Buddhist psychology very much at variance with Western psychology in which the mind tends to be regarded as something separate from the senses as a a separate self to which the senses present themselves. But this impression that we have of the mind being something separate that is observing our other senses is incorrect. The only difference between the mind and the other senses is the type of sensory contact that it provides. Mind is a sense that enables contact with what we regard as internal processes such as feelings and thoughts. And it has to be that way when we think about it. Earlier we encountered feeling tone, vedna, that stage in which sensory impressions become categorised as pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. Well, this applies to thoughts and feelings also, doesn't it? If it were the case that the mind were some kind of separate observer, then mental phenomena such as thoughts and feelings would be us, rather than things that impact on us, which of course is what they obviously are. One day I was sitting meditating and a dog barked outside, and for some reason I was suddenly hit by something remarkable in that simple sensory experience of a sound which was that it was simply the hearing of a sound. It suddenly became apparent that everything I was experiencing through my senses was simply a sensory experience. (laughs) Experience was just sensory experiences. There was no room in any of that for a self, for some sort of observing identity. That idea suddenly ceased to make sense. Where would it go? Where could there possibly be room for such a thing? Given that experience was packed full of sensory experiences. Including experiences of thoughts and feelings. The habit of regarding the mind as a thing is very deeply ingrained. And I apologise if I've talked about the mind doing this or that. Or creating this or that. In what I said previously, which I strongly suspect I may have done. As this stage hopefully reveals, it's not really correct to say things like our mind labels our experiences as pleasant or unpleasant. It's more correct to say that our mind reveals to us that our experiences are being labelled as such. So in the previous stage, sensory contact, we waved goodbye to the notion of a separate external world independent of our sensory processes and in this stage of the process six senses we bid a fond farewell to the idea of a separate independent observing mind so from this point onwards we're moving into consideration of causes beyond the senses and also beyond that duality between subject and object which is such a big part of how we ordinarily perceive the everyday world. What gives rise to the senses then is what the Buddha terms name and form. In order for the senses to pick up on something that means that something is perceptible, it has a means of presenting itself to the senses. So in terms of the so-called physical senses it must have some sort of physical form that can be presented. And in terms of mind, for us to be able to pick up on something mentally, we tend to regard that form as something more subtle. Things have to have a name or a label for us to perceive them mentally as concepts. To get the idea of this across there's that famous but probably false story about the indigenous South Americans who were supposedly unable to see the galleons of the conquistadors. It's this kind of idea, the idea that things must have a recognisable form or name in order for us to apprehend them. I really don't believe that the indigenous South Americans couldn't perceive a huge floating hunk of wood just because they hadn't got a word for galleon. What I think we are talking about at this level of the chain is something very similar to the Platonic idea of forms and the Jungian revival of this in the idea of the archetype. Sometimes popular presentations of these ideas can maybe lead to the impression that the forms or the archetype are some kind of objective things that inhabit a particular realm as if they're somehow separated off from everything else in some sense and I think the idea of name and form here is really good at dispelling that because it's clear here that name and form are only a step in A long process of manifestation. Name and form gives rise to what and how we perceive but as we'll see in a moment name and form is in turn dependent upon other factors. They're not cut off in some kind of special realm all by themselves and I don't think Plato and Jung were ever suggesting that but suggesting something more along the lines of Predispositions towards perceiving things in certain ways. So I don't think Plato was saying that every table in existence was an instance of some ideal table that exists in another realm, but rather a universal predisposition to a certain configuration of things appearing as a table is what enables us to perceive tables around us as such. Magically this is a level that's pretty useful to us. By intervening at the level of name and form we can influence what is perceived and that of course has impacts all along the chain in terms of what will then manifest. So in therapy reframing, interpreting these can help the client shift their perception and begin to see reality in new ways and in magic also I mean there's just so much isn't there any form of magic involving any manipulation of symbols probably has the potential to make an impact at this level on to the next level and the cause of name and form according to the Buddha is body now our current dominant academic style of thinking would probably want to posit some sort of culturally determined or socially determined level at this point but the Buddha it seems dives straight for the biological level. Body is the cause of name and form. The sense here I think is that it's something about having a human body that makes possible a corresponding form of experience in which name and form can take the role that they do. Having a human body is what enables us to perceive things in the way that we do and also seems to lead to our predilection for naming things and inventing concepts and symbols. Our... Obsession with creating and perpetuating symbols seems to be what marks us out as a species. I suggested a parallel between name and form and Jung's notion of the archetypes, and Jung seems to have thought of the archetypes as originating maybe from some kind of innate structure in the human brain, from the body, in effect. But it's also important to bear in mind, I think, that what the Buddha is getting at here is, again, not the idea of the body as a thing, as an object, but very much as a specific kind of agent. It's all about what the body does rather than what it is. Because, of course, bodies evolve over time. Evolution has created what we think of as the human body at the moment. And perhaps over time something different will evolve from this that we may or may not still consider to be human. It's maybe also worth thinking about at this point how some of the links in the chain that we've talked about are more amenable to intervention perhaps than others. Intervening at this level would certainly seem a lot more difficult than some of the others we've looked at. Now the next link in the chain is a little strange and there's a problem here that we need to sort out because according to the Buddha that next link is mind. Maybe it's an issue in translation, I don't know. But the problem is we've already encountered the concept of mind at the level of six senses where mind features as one of the senses. Now it doesn't make sense to have mind as a prior cause of itself. So I think we need to break with the normal translation conventions here. I think that a better term for what's being described at this level is psyche or soul. The way I distinguish between the two is that when we think of our mind perhaps often what we mean by that is our faculty for cognition, thinking conceiving but what I think is meant by psyche or soul and certainly seems to be what's being got at in this level is not about being able to think but us seeming to have an individualized instance of experience that underlies that and is the basis of us being able to do that Soul is the individualised occurrence of a human experience. It's that level of our being that has a mind and uses it to think with, rather than being completely defined by that. But now we have another problem, which is the Buddhist suggestion that psyche or soul gives rise to the body, and that's complete anathema to Western scientism. Which insists that mental experience is uh, an epiphenomenon of material processes. But what we have to remember here of course is that the model the Buddha is giving us is purely and deeply experiential. He didn't have a brain scanner or any other kinds of sensors apart from the six senses we described earlier. When we look at our experience head-on, we see that our sensations of having a body, our experience of having a body, has no more inherent solidity than our thoughts and our feelings. All are equally as real to us. But what is apparent to us in all of that is that having an individualised experience, a soul, a psyche, is what enables that experience of the physical, of the body and its activities. So from the perspective of experience, which is what's being described here and of course is what matters to us as magicians, soul, psyche evidently and obviously precedes body. What gives rise to soul or psyche says the Buddha is consciousness. Again, a notoriously difficult (laughs) concept. Sometimes consciousness is used to refer to a kind of ultimate consciousness. The one, the divine. And that's not what's being highlighted at this level, I think. Sometimes in spiritual literature you'll see the term witness consciousness. And that, I think, is more like what the Buddha was intending here. Whereas at the previous stage of soul or psyche there is a sense of an individual experience that is aware, at this level, the underlying level that gives rise to that, there's just awareness, just the being aware. There's an interesting exercise that you can do which is also a really good meditation. Although I don't recommend that you do it because it can be quite destabilising. But it involves looking into our immediate experience and trying to pinpoint the impression of being oneself. Where do we find our experience of being ourselves? Often it feels like a, a sense of presence behind our eyes. Or maybe a kind of feeling of pressure in our forehead some people might feel it instead in their heart but it exposes a weird paradox because whatever feels like me instantly disqualifies itself from being that because it's a feeling that I'm having it's not the experiencer or the producer of that feeling it itself is just another feeling consciousness in the sense that it's being referred to at this level. It's that paradoxical something that produces awareness but isn't itself anywhere in awareness. It's detached, it's what enables us to perceive the qualities of things but it itself doesn't have any qualities that we can perceive. A useful metaphor perhaps is light Imagine there's a room and there's things going on in the room and the lights are on and so we can see what's happening, we're aware of what's going on in the room which we wouldn't be if the lights were off but when the lights are on it's not as if the light participates in any way in whatever's going on in the room We have to be careful here We've perhaps veered a little bit into the question of what consciousness is But what the Buddha is teaching us here is a process, the process of manifestation. So it's important to consider what is happening with the appearance of consciousness at this part of the process. With consciousness, experience takes on qualities. Without consciousness, it doesn't. Therefore, what can begin to happen with the appearance of consciousness is what can maybe be described by the words discernment or discrimination. If experience has qualities then a process of distinguishing between qualities can begin. Things like blueness, redness, hotness, coldness, sourness, bitterness, become possible at this stage and so too in that, in the way that that is now possible there is a dividing, a selecting, a distinguishing. What gives rise to consciousness the Buddha tells us is what gets translated into English as the term formations. The word in Pali is sankara. And what this seems to refer to is some kind of karmic imprint. We're beyond consciousness here, remember, so we're not going to be able to become aware directly of these things. They don't have any perceptible qualities. There have been lots of neurological studies exploring the idea of free will. And maybe these offer a handle on what the Buddha might have been getting at here. All sorts of different kinds of experiments have been designed but generally they take the form of asking the subject to decide spontaneously to make some sort of action while some kind of physiological measure is recorded. And what the studies have shown in general, although not without controversy, is that physiological changes occur before the subject Is consciously aware of their intention to make the action. What these experiments might be taken to suggest then is that there's something happening in the subject that precedes their consciousness, their awareness of the intention to make the action. And that's what the Buddha seems to be getting at here this idea that what we become conscious of is determined by what we have a tendency towards. So these are formations, karmic imprints, tendencies, intentions that precede our awareness of them but are what determine consciousness because they decide what we will become conscious of. That's one aspect of formations I think but despite them being beyond consciousness there is an experiential dimension to them. However we become aware of them perhaps through what's not happening rather than through anything that is happening. It's possible to get into quite deep meditative states where not very much mental activity is going on at all. And what is going on has a particular quality to it. The way I've tended to describe this in my own experience is... Things have got so quiet and so chilled out that hardly anything's happening. But what is happening, I just don't know what it is anymore. Everything's so quiet and so focused. And the mind is so broad and encompassing of everything that is happening that it just doesn't resolve into anything. It's just a very wide and formless flipping or twitching, but not in an irritating or necessarily pleasant sense either, because that would be something, that would be going somewhere. That sense of, I don't know what this is anymore, implies maybe that in this state of awareness things don't have any qualities because it's not possible to say what they're like. But nevertheless there is in this state uh, a sense of some kind of impulse, to make something of what's happening. Yet at the same time this never really gets off the ground. It doesn't go anywhere. Because the mind is so focused and calm. In this area of the process of manifestation. We're, we're almost out of manifestation altogether. Not much is happening at all. But something still is. That tendency to make something out of nothing is still active, which brings us at last to the final link in the chain, the cause of all manifestation, which the Buddha describes as ignorance, what gives rise to formations, what gives rise to that tendency to make an experience out of nothing is ignorance. It's that fundamental impulse to make something substantial out of what's insubstantial. From that arises the karmic tendencies of formations. From that tendency towards an experience of some type arises consciousness. From consciousness soul. The having an experience as such. From soul arises body the factors that the human form introduces into experience. From body arises name and form, these condition what is perceptible to us and so from name and form arises perception in the shape of the six senses. From the six senses arises sensory contact, that connection through the senses with aspects of reality and from that arises feeling tone or Vedana, Things are perceived as either pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. And now we're into mundane experience because from feeling tone arises craving. The urge towards what we want and away from what we don't want. And from craving grasping and from grasping becoming. If we've grasped onto something then things are changing. Those changes resulting in consequences And when those consequences arrive, that's birth. And then, once that materialisation, that manifestation has taken place, whatever has been born is now subject to death, and to the usual round of old age and suffering and death that characterises everyday life, or samsara, as it's also known. In this model, the Buddhist model, the path of manifestation is from ignorance to death although there are some hacks along the way as i hope i've suggested by which we can give the process a nudge here and there and tweak the outcome in certain respects i realized as i was about half an hour into this episode that i had way too much material for one episode so next time we'll explore a buddhist model of transcendence and consider What magical opportunities that offers and also I'll give some suggestions for mapping this onto the western magical tradition in terms of the Kabbalistic Tree of Life and the Tarot. But for now I hope I've left you with something substantial to chew on which I offer as a detailed model of manifestation. Something we can use maybe to get deeper insight into how our magic is achieving the effects that it achieves. There's a whole second set of nidanas in the Buddha's teachings. These are known as the transcendental nidanas. And instead of proceeding from ignorance to death, you might be relieved to hear that they take us in the alternative direction. The Buddha, of course, taught that there is an escape from samsara, that liberation from suffering is possible. And next time we'll explore the links in the chain of causes that leads from suffering to liberation. Until then, may you be well and happy and hopefully we'll speak soon. Take care. Bye-bye.